0: be here. I gotta say, if you have a sweater like this in your closet, and you're doing a Mr. Rogers series, and you don't wear it, what are you doing, right? What are you even doing? So, and some of you are like, why do you have that in your closet? And I would just tell you to be nice. We are, we're starting a series called Won't You Be My Neighbor? You know, neighbors are an interesting thing. Uh, Amy and I first moved into our current house in 2007. We had just gotten married at the end of 2006, and, uh, you know, you, a lot of people, you buy like a, a fixer-upper, right? You're like, all right, we're, we're just brand new. I didn't know how to fix anything, though. So we built a new house, because that felt safer. That felt like, okay, do that. We can't mess that up, right? But the one thing you have to do if you, buy, if you build a new house is you have to put in a mailbox, which doesn't sound that hard. So I went out there. It was the first time. We didn't live in the house yet, but the builder said, yeah, go ahead and put the mailbox in. So I went out. You know, you've got like this post that you got to do, and I get a hammer, and you got to drive it in there, and it can't be that hard. But what I've learned in the time I've lived there since then is that we have some good topsoil and then just rock. It's just terrible. So I'm trying to put this thing in, and I'm driving it in, and the harder I hit, the more the pole just starts to bend. It's not going in the ground. It's just progressively bending more and more. And then I start to get concerned because it's a suburban housing track kind of neighborhood. I can feel other people watching me. And I know that there are real men in this neighborhood watching me try to do work, and they're going, look at this fool. Can you believe what he's doing. And eventually three guys came out, and I died inside, only to find out they were truly some of the best neighbors, and they were kind, and they did not make me feel like a moron. And uh, two of them are still our neighbors, and they're just absolutely fantastic people. But that really, for us, kind of set the tone of what that neighborhood would be. We've been there for 15 years now, you know, and it's a great place. It's the kind of neighborhood, there was a, a day last winter where I knew it snowed a lot, and uh, our driveway is a hill, so I can get my truck up there, Amy's van, a little here, so I said, I got to get home in time to snow blow the driveway, and I checked the cameras, and the driveway was completely clear. It's just like glistening blacktop. So I texted my neighbor Tyler, he's got a tractor, and I said, hey man, thanks for doing the driveway, really appreciate it. He said, no, I was going to do it, but Dave beat me to it. So I text Dave and said, hey man, you're a great neighbor, thanks for doing the driveway. He said, nope, other Dave, he beat me to it. So I text the third guy, and I said, you know, that's a good neighborhood when somebody clears your driveway and there's so many people that might have done it for you. That's the kind of neighborhood that we live in. We live in a place where I find it easy most of the time, to love our literal neighbors. Because when we hear that word neighbor and we talk about neighbors, most of us tend to default, as I just did, to the person that lives right next to us. But it doesn't take a lot of Bible reading to find out that when Jesus told us to love our neighbor, he wasn't just talking about the people next door. So we're going to talk about loving your neighbor today. And as we dig in to how to love our neighbors and what that means, I just kind of want to cheat a little bit. I want to begin with the end in mind. And I want to tell you what we're going to find out. Here's what we're going to find out. Loving our neighbor will require something of us and will reveal even more about us. It requires something of us to love our neighbor. It's going to take our time. It's going to cost money. It's going to take our effort. A lot of times, sometimes it will lead to disappointment, right? Sometimes you invest in someone, and you love them well, and they hurt you, or they disappoint you. Uh, You do that, you know, that happens as a pastor. You really invest in someone's life, and then, you know, something happens, and they, they leave, or they just kind of walk away, and you think, man, I invested all that. It's part of being a neighbor. It requires something of us. But it will also reveal a whole lot about us. For me, when I'm not walking well with God, the first thing that seems to go is my ability to love other people well. If I find myself being a jerk, if I find myself being impatient and rude, being judgmental, not being kind, it usually doesn't take very long for me to work backwards and say, oh yeah, you know, you haven't been spending nearly enough time investing in your own relationship with God lately, have you? So loving our neighbor will require something of us, but it will reveal even more about us and about where we are with God these days. And Jesus, he wanted to illustrate this. Somebody had asked him a question. He wanted to illustrate this in the answer, and that story happens in the 10th chapter of Luke. It's what we commonly know as the Good Samaritan, which is one of the better-known parables that Jesus taught, both inside the church and outside the church. I mean, it's, it's well known enough that if you say someone was a good Samaritan to someone outside the church, they're almost definitely going to know what you're talking about. But if you referred to the unforgiving servant or the rich fool or a lot of other parables, uh, most people outside the church would not have a clue. A lot of people inside the church wouldn't have a clue, and that's, that's fine, too. Glad you're here. But we when we think we know and we understand the Good Samaritan, we think we have a pretty good grasp on it. But if you do, I just encourage you, don't check out. Stick around. I hope to shine some new light uh, as we look at that today. So I'm just gonna kind of walk through the story. Feel free to fact check me. Feel free to open your Bible and kind of follow along. You'll see where I'm getting all this. Because it begins with this young hotshot lawyer who stands up and he asks Jesus, Teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you're going to mention a lawyer in a message, you get to tell one free lawyer joke. So the guy came up to an attorney and he said, How much does it cost me to ask you three questions? And the attorney said, That's going to be $300. And the guy said, Man, that's pretty steep, isn't it? And he said, Yes, it is. What's your third question? <laughs> All right, that's decent. Right? It's okay. And so, he didn't ask this because he didn't know the answer. He did it because he wanted to test Jesus. What he wanted was to ask Jesus this question and have him fall on his face and look foolish in front of the crowd. But Jesus, he loved answering a question with a question. So he responds and says, well, you know the law. What does the law say? He kind of puts the ball back in his court and the lawyer said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting the Old Testament. He knew the law. And Jesus says, you've got it. Now go and actually do it. Which is the heart of Jesus, right? That's the heart of Jesus. It's not what we know, it's what we do. And that's what he tells the lawyer. But he wants to justify himself. So as lawyers do, he's looking for some technicalities. He's looking for some loopholes. He's looking for some ways out. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus is great. He answers the questions but he is a master at not answering them in the way that you want them answered, right? He always gives the answer, but it's not this direct, straight shot, you know? And and sometimes I'm guilty as a parent of trying to turn everything into a life lesson, right? Like something's happening, my kids are falling, and as they're falling, I'm like, what did I tell you about that, right? I'm like, just wait till they land before you start the lecture. You know, when Grace was three, she was carrying a bunch of stuff up the stairs all the time, and it made me really nervous. So in my, my wisdom of parenting, I showed her... One of those Allstate mayhem commercials where that guy fell down a whole flight of stairs and I was like, this will teach her. What it did was make me have to carry up the stairs for like three weeks because she wouldn't go up or down the stairs at all. So I'm always trying to turn something into a lesson and that's what Jesus does. You know, if Jesus was a parent, the kid would say, hey, what time's my curfew? And he would say a young girl went from churchville to batavia and you'd be like what time do i have to be home and so that's what he does with this lawyer he says who is my neighbor and jesus answer is a man was going from jerusalem to jericho Now, the road to Jericho is not a good place to be alone, as this man in the story was. It was about an 18-mile trip, which is, that's my commute from Churchville to Batavia. It was 18 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's more than you could comfortably walk in a day. Uh, So there's inns along the way. There's plenty of travelers making this trip. But to get there, to get to Jericho, you had to go through some pretty long stretches of empty road where it's just kind of bordered by rocks and hills. It's a dangerous place, and that made it an ideal place for thieves and criminals to hide. That's why normally when making this trip, people would travel in groups. It would make it safer. But the man in Jesus' story seems to have been alone. Jesus goes on, he says, When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead they attack him, they strip him, they beat him, they leave him there to die, and he is now a guy desperately in need of help. Even though he was by himself, it would only be a matter of time until another traveler or a pack of travelers finally went through and found him. And after a little, other travelers did come along the road and they saw him, and they were probably shocked and frightened as any normal person would be. I mean, think about, if we see that, think of some of the great excuses that you and I would come up with for not helping a person in that spot. We'd say things like, man, that's a really dangerous spot. I can't risk my own safety to help him. We say, how do I know that's not just a decoy so somebody else can come out and ambush and rob me? We'd look, we'd see the person and say, you know, I'm, I'm already late for work Got a nine o'clock meeting. It's a little tight. I got to get going. We would be coming back and say, oh man, I've got to go and see my family. We would look, some of us would look and say, Man, somebody really should help that man. I would look and say, I don't even know first aid. Or we'd look and say, It might be a helpless case. He might already be dead. I'm not going to do all that for somebody that's already dead. We would say, I'm only one person. This is too big of a job for one person. A lot of us would say, I'm going to pray for that guy. I'm going to pray for him. Some people would say, You know, he brought it on himself he should never have been alone on such a dangerous road. He kind of got what he deserves. Or we would say, he never actually even asked for my help. Charles Spurgeon said, I never knew a man that refused to help the poor who failed to give at least one admirable excuse. And so Jesus says in the account, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. The first person was a priest from the temple in Jerusalem. He was a very important man. The priesthood was hereditary. You could not volunteer for it. You couldn't sign up for it as in the modern world. A person who belonged to it was born into it and it was a closed, high-ranking office. But priests, they had a very strict obligation to obey the laws that made them ritually clean, that made them suitable for service in the temple. And the man on the side of the road, the victim, beaten almost to death, is undoubtedly covered in blood. Now I'm good with that, right? If he's covered in blood, like I'm like all right, I can help out. If he puked, I'm out. I'm just going to keep going, right? I'm just be like put me in the parable Jesus, I got to keep walking, right? Ask my kids, if you puke, we're going to call your mom. This coming into contact with this man certainly would have disqualified the priest. It would have made him unclean. But the trouble is the priest is traveling away from Jerusalem, not towards Jerusalem where the temple was. His temple duties were already completed. He could have helped, but he looked and he chose not to. He probably thought that he was too important of a person for this gross of a task. So Jesus continues. He tells us about the second person and says, So too a Levite when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. The second traveler to encounter the wounded man is a Levite. Now, a Levite is a temple official from the priestly tribe of Levi. He was basically one step down from a priest. He studied the law of Moses and the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, and his task in life was to know and interpret the law. It's a very respected, Responsible member of society, but he too passes by. Together, these two men, this priest and this Levite, they stood for the great ruling religious institution of the Jewish nation at the time of Jesus. They were respected religious people of great standing and stature, and they did nothing. Their religion and their knowledge in no way impacted their behavior. The account moves on and Jesus says, but a Samaritan as he traveled came where the man was and when he saw him, He took pity on him. Jesus, he is a master storyteller, and he takes a dramatic turn for his audience here. Who's going to be the hero? Who is going to be the good guy? I mean, after taking shots at the religious hierarchy, his listeners are probably listening and thinking, I bet you the good guy is going to be a regular Jewish person like you and me. That's probably who it is. But no, when Jesus says it, it's a Samaritan boo, right? This is like talking to a group of Bills fans and then saying, and then a Patriots fan came along and you're like, no, not them. Pick anyone else. Pick any other team. It's a classic Jewish villain because Jews detested the Samaritans. For a religious culture that was all about purity, they saw Samaritans as a picture of impurity. They were thought of as half-breeds and they were hated. But Jesus, he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. I just want you to think for a second. If Jesus was telling you this story instead of the lawyer, who would he put into the role of the Samaritan for you? Would it be somebody from the political party that you hate? Would it be someone from the kind of church that you grew up in? Maybe it's somebody from the LGBTQ community. Only you can answer that for yourself, but I promise you Jesus would hit the nail on the head for each of us like he did for his listeners here. And it says the Samaritan, Jesus says he went and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then the man, and he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. He sees this need, and he stops. He doesn't look at the reasons why he shouldn't help or the justifications of why he doesn't have to help. He just does it. He doesn't provide some light touch and come over and be like, hey, buddy, you all right? You look like you had a bad day. He doesn't do one of those. He gets his hands dirty. He gets in. He gets involved. He gets invested. The next day, he took out two denarii. He gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. He pays out of his own pocket. He invested in this guy and in his well-being. And why? What about this guy laying on the road made him deserving of this kind of care from the Samaritan? The answer is nothing. The answer is nothing because, get this, it wasn't about the guy who had been beaten. Hang on to that for a minute. It wasn't about the guy who had been beaten. We're going to come back to this. now. Jesus has wrapped up his story, and he says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Classic Jesus again. He's going to make you give the answer to the really obvious question. You have to imagine, as the lawyer answers this, it's kind of through gritted teeth when he says, The one who had mercy on him. He's like, We get it. We all get it. And then Jesus said, Go and do likewise. That's the message of Jesus to each of us. He does not tell us to go and know likewise. He tells us to go and do likewise. The first two travelers to pass by undoubtedly knew more than the third one, but that had absolutely no impact on their behavior and on their actions. The life that Jesus calls us to isn't just one of knowing what we should do to love our neighbor. It's a life of doing what it actually takes to love them Well, But most of us, we approach this story, we hear it, we feel some defensiveness, and we kind of have the same approach, and we say, so who exactly do I have to help? Who are we supposed to love? Where can I draw the lines? But as Jesus did that day, he turns the question around to us, and he says, look at the person who acts in mercy, and stop asking, who is my neighbor? We have much more important questions to ask. John Piper, he asked this question, and man, this, I've been sitting with this and wrestling with it. He said, when we are done trying to establish, is this my neighbor? The decisive issue of love remains, what kind of person am I? We can spend all kinds of time trying to decide who our neighbor is and what we are expected to do to help them. But what actually makes the biggest difference in the way that we treat our neighbors is our identity not theirs. The Samaritan helped someone who in normal life circumstances would have ignored him, probably would have despised him, maybe would have even mocked him. Yet on this day, on this road to Jericho, this mocking, despising, arrogant man needed help. And so the Samaritan helped him. It was not about whether or not this man deserved his help. It was about who the Samaritan was because he was someone who helped anyone who needed help. And that's the message of Jesus to us, is that anyone in need is your neighbor. Anyone in need is your neighbor. The focus of Jesus' story, the point of it all, is that the priest and the Levite, they lacked understanding of who they were, or more precisely, who they should be as God followers. They were not listening to the call of God to love others, to his commandment to be a good neighbor. They mistakenly thought they were doing more important things in their own lives than actually helping someone who needed help. And How often do you and I make the same mistake but we need to see that God made us for more. He actually created us to do more. Ephesians 2.10 puts it this way, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Everyone, all of us, we are God's handiwork or His craftsmanship. The Greek word there means poem. We are His poem or His poetry. You, me, your friends, your family. Yes, even that person in your family, your coworkers, your boss, the people that live next door to you, the people that pass by and you hope they don't look up and make eye contact with you. We are all God's handiwork, his poetry, his artistry, his mastery. That's how he views us. And that's how he wants to view each other as we grow in his grace and his love. That's how he wants us to view people that we agree with and people that we disagree with. Remember our old friend, Bob Goff, he recently addressed us in a video, take a look. The thing that we do sometimes, by mistake, we'll say, well, if you need anything, let me know. If a person's in need, they don't know what they need. They're just they they're just wounded and hurt and all that. So, so offer a couple suggestions. Make them a pie, wash their car. Like, do something really practical. That's where we find out what love is. That's where we share the deepest part of what we really believe. Your faith isn't the sum of all the things you agree with. It's what you do with what you agree with. That's where love is. So how do I organize my life around these principles of love that Jesus talked about? Do stuff. And it's not because Jesus needs your help. I asked him before we started, what he wants is your heart. If you turn your mic off during the video, you gotta turn it back on when it's done. I love that. I love the practicality of what he's saying there. And, and I've thought about this so many times because on one of the worst days of our life when our youngest daughter was bit by a dog and we were in the emergency room, I mean, we were so well loved and cared and prayed for by our family and our church family and our friends. Um, but we had one particular couple And then they didn't text us and say, if you need anything, let us know. We had a lot of those offers and we appreciated every one of them. But when we got to the emergency room, they were there. They were there with phone chargers. They were there with a ton of food. They were there for a change of clothes for Amy because she was covered in blood. They just thought, what could they possibly need? And they showed up. And I'll never forget seeing them in the emergency room that night and saying, that's the kind of friend that I want to be. I love those words and the thoughts from Bob Goff. I pulled out this quote from the video, your faith isn't the sum of all the things you agree with. It's what you do with what you agree with. That's where love is. That makes me think of the words of First John, right? First John 3, 18, where he told us, Dear children, let us not love in words or speech, but with actions and in truth. As Christ followers, it would be a great step forward if we told people what we believe half as often and we showed them what we believe twice as much. It would be a really great step forward. Our love, the true barometer is not just if we love our neighbor, if we love God that we claim to follow, but how it will be how and when and why and where we love our neighbor. Later in First John, he says, If you can't love people that you can see, how can we claim to love a God that we can't see? Then in the book of James, Jesus' brother, he gives us this harsh reality check of how we can check on the true condition of our faith when he said in the same way, faith by itself, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. He's like, hey, you're dragging along this faith, right, look back behind, it's dead because there's no actions attached to it. And what is the action? It's it's kind of a vague word, James. What's the action that we're supposed to be taking? Paul, in Galatians 5, we're gonna piece this puzzle together. He makes it, I think, as simple as can be. I mean, are parts of the Bible confusing? Absolutely. Are there parts that are hard to make clear? Sure. But this, this can't be any more clear, any less confusing. When Paul says, for the entire law is fulfilled. The whole Bible, the Old Testament, it's all boiled down to this, in keeping this one command love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's like, hey, it's complicated, right? They had 613 Old Testament laws that the Jews were trying to follow. And Paul says, we're gonna boil it all down right here. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus' parable serves as a bit of a warning to us because these opportunities to act like a good neighbor, they're going to come to you and I in the middle of the busyness of our own lives. We're on the road, we're going somewhere, we're running late, we have important responsibilities, and the middle of that comes an encounter, comes an invitation with somebody that needs help. And the decisive issue of loving our neighbor is this, what kind of person am I? So let me ask you, what kind of person are you? We are people that have been loved by God so much that He paid the price for our sins through Jesus' death. And because of God's love for us, He fills us with His Spirit. He fills us with His love, with the expectation that we will then express and show that love to others. But we get it messed up. Somewhere along the line, a lot of people decided our biggest jobs are judging, preaching, and condemning, not loving. And that mentality is taking the church nowhere fast. The world is sick of it, and I can't blame them. Back to Bob Goff, he suggests this. Instead of telling everyone what Jesus meant, just love people the way he did. Instead of explaining all this, oh, well, this, this, and that. No, 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 just love people the way that he did. We get that backwards. Love people first. We can worry about the other stuff later. That is a decision, a deliberate decision that Amy and I have made, that we're going to love people. We're going to love people that we agree with, people that we disagree with. I've walked it through. I've worked it out. And I think if I get to heaven one day and Jesus says, man, you just love too many people. You love people that were sinners. You love people that had some problems. You love people with issues. You loved them too much. I think I can take that better than getting to heaven and having Jesus say, you didn't love the people. These were people I created. These were people I died for. These were people I loved and I counted on you to show them my love and you didn't love them. So I'm gonna err on this side. If we get up to heaven and I was wrong, I'm gonna live with it. You can tell me I was wrong at that time, but that is the decision that we have made. I don't know about you, but this is a tough message for me. It's, it's a disturbing message that John Piper quote really bothers me. It doesn't bother me because I think it's wrong or misguided. It bothers me because I'm positive that he's right and it raises all sorts of questions. It makes me feel defensive. Am I supposed to help everyone who asks for my help? Or even more, am I supposed to help people regardless of if they ask for help? What if they're gonna squander the help that I give them? What if I'm being scammed? What if they're asking me for help, but they never actually make any changes for themselves? What if I give so much help that it cuts into the resources that I have to take care of myself and my family? Or there's so much need in this world, how can I even begin to help? And as I wrestle with those questions, as I think about that, I have an image in my head of a guy standing in a cold street corner in Rochester holding up a sign that says homeless vet need help. What does helping him look like? Do I just drive by like the priest or the Levite, smugly sure that it is not my job to help? These are good questions, practical questions that we need to unpack together. And if you're not in a small group, I encourage you, go out for breakfast or coffee with some friends, get lunch today, and talk about this. Say, what does it look like to be a good neighbor? And ask yourself, and ask each other, are we missing God's invitation to do good works? Are we missing the chance to be people who love with our actions, not just with our words? And are we missing the opportunity to love our neighbor as ourself and to go and do likewise, as Jesus said to this lawyer. There are no easy answers here, but I can tell you what I would love for each and every one of us to do. I gotta give you the takeaway a little earlier so I can tell you this. I would love for us to ask God to give you eyes to see the needs around you, the wisdom to know what to do, and the courage to actually do it. I dare you to pray for those three things. Pray for those things and say, God, don't just give me the eyes to see, right? You pray for the eyes to see the need around you. I promise you, you're gonna start seeing a lot of need. You don't have to look hard. But pray for the wisdom to know what to do and then the courage to follow through and actually do it. Guys, if we were a church full of people praying this prayer, God would answer it and we would change this area with his love. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for, Lord, this illustration that Jesus gave thousands of years ago that can still hit so close to home for us today. God, I pray that we would not be people who just love with our words. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just be people that come and worship and say, all right, I've checked the box, I'm good until next week. But God, we would be people who love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, that we would be people that pray that. God, that ask that you'd give us eyes to see. Lord, there's so much need around us. Lord, give us eyes to see that need, not just to fly by it. And then Lord, I pray you would give each of us the wisdom of what it is we can do to impact that situation. And God, once you've given us those two things, we trust you to give us the courage to respond. And God, we pray that you would do that. Lord, that you would do that for the good of the world around us. God, you do it for our great joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If, if Jesus Christ is your living hope, then your next job is to carry that hope out to the world around us. And we do that by loving the people that God puts in our path. We'll so give you that takeaway again. It's just to ask God to see the needs around you. Ask him to give you the wisdom to know what to do and the courage to actually do it. Go today in the love of God, the grace of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week. We will see you next weekend for the great day of giving.